Blog Talk Radio. There's some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. And I saw that bird pick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue what was throwing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and looked back, and that's when I thought I saw one. actually attacked two railroad workers, uh, killed livestock, you know, just a lot of weird stuff that was going on. Conference uh, hosted Matt Johnson is April 24th through the 26th. 
You can check that out at www.teamsquatchinusa.com. So with us today is our our uh, research partner and uh, good friend, Cindy. How are you, Cindy? I'm doing great. Good. So when we, a couple of weeks ago we had uh, William Barnes on from the, the Falcon Project. He was looking for um, runners to, to take supplies in and out to the, the members of the, the Falcon Project. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I know that you volunteered, and, and uh, it seemed like uh, you uh, took on a, a bigger role. Yeah, actually I did. Um, so, so yeah, I called in. I was pretty excited. I'm like, oh, that could be fun, you know, running, you know, supplies, batteries, whatever, into the, the base group that's going to be, you know, out in the field. And I just thought it would be a little bit of an adventure. And then a few days later I get a call from William and Kirk Brandenburg, and uh, I guess they had been talking behind the scenes and asked if I'd be interested in being the coordinator for the runners. So, here I am. I'm the coordinator for the runners. And um, our original goal was to have, <laughs> I know, I'm taking off probably more than I, I can chew, but um, our original goal was to have runners be with them, you know, a few months at a time. But a lot of people, that's probably too much. I mean, it is a lot of walking back and forth. And um, so now we're looking at for people that, you know, uh, volunteer for a couple weeks. And if that's not possible, our backup is, taking people on that can um, volunteer for one week, and then we'll layer the one-weekers with the more extended time volunteers. So um, what they would have to do is walk 5 to 20 miles a day, and believe me, I'm going to try to keep it below 20 if I have anything to say about it, Um, but they'd have to pack in food, equipment like batteries, memory cards, and such, and then they will also meet up with the ground crew uh, and take out any data that they collected, for scientific um, analysis, so it could be footage, hair samples, um, cast, you know, whatever, whatever they have to take out. Oh, and also trash. But we're hoping to have them hike in one day, spend the night with the crew, hike back out, and then just do that, you know, every day. So that's kind of what we're looking at. If there's anybody out there that wants to volunteer, it starts, I think, in about uh, 70 days or so they're going to start. And they're looking at, like, uh, I think six months of this. So we need quite a few runners. If you can do a couple different terms, that would be great. Um, William, who is the founder, William Barnes, he wants to interview everybody first. And I can give you his number. Do you, do you guys have it? Or... No Are you ready? <laughs> okay. You can give it okay, now. Everybody get a pen. Like it I'll give it to you. Sounds like you'd have it I'll handy, it. so. I do. I do. And I'll give it to you right now. It's uh, 435 215-3054. That's 435-215-3054. And you can also um, contact him via email, which I don't know exactly his email at, off the top of my head, but just look up the falconproject.com. And there is a dash between the and Falcon, and um, all the information is on there, and you guys can read up on it. But um, that's pretty much it. We're also looking into... Um, getting some alpacas or llamas to help us carry supplies in. So if anybody has any llamas or alpacas they want to loan out, <laughs> we'll take them. <laughs> um, yeah, so then they're getting a little creative, too. They possibly have some parachute um, 
volunteers that could, you know, we can find an open meadow near the ground crew they could fly into or drop packages. So we're um, kind of brainstorming a little bit, but um, definitely we'll have to need, need, we'll need manpower on the ground huffing in and huffing out. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. So, Cindy, the, what area of the country is, is this taking place in? I know you can't um, they don't have the They don't have the exact location yet, but it's going to be in Washington State. Um, okay. It'll, prob- it'll probably be in, like, uh, northern Washington. So that's, uh, okay. that's kind of the goal. So, so what you're saying is the runner is committing for a week of, of every day going in and out of the – or going in for a day, staying overnight, coming back out, picking up stuff, yep. taking it back in for a solid right. week. Okay. Right, right. So that's that's the the plan. One day in, hang out with the ground crew. One day out, hang out at base camp. One day back in. So there will be a lot of walking. Um, so you know, get get prepared for that. If you're <laughs> if you're out of shape, then start start walking now. But definitely, if you have at least two weeks to volunteer, that'd be great. Um, food will be provided, unless they get a windfall in, in financial backing. There's no funds for the runners right now. It's strictly volunteer other than your food is paid for. Um, but it's an adventure, so we're looking for anybody who wants to have fun and be part of this project. And, the, and so the first step would for them, for anybody who's interested in being a runner, would be get a hold of, of yeah, William. William yeah, William, yeah. Yeah, William okay. Barnes. And then he'll he'll talk to you a little bit. He could probably answer any in-depth questions because he is the founder and uh, I just became a runner what, a couple weeks ago, so I mean, I have a basic understanding, but he, he's the brains of this whole project, so he could answer all the in-depth questions for sure. All right. Well, that's yeah. very, really cool. Real quick, he's yeah. also on Facebook. If, if anybody just wanted to reach out via Facebook, he, he does check his face, uh, Facebook um, quite often, so if you just wanted to send him a PM, um, mm-hmm. feel free to do that think- as well. Yeah, and it should be under William Allen Barnes. And he's right. really good about getting back to people almost immediately. And um, phone calls, he loves phone calls. So um, he usually, if he's not busy, he'll answer his phone right away. So he's, you know, very reachable. Very good. Yep. Excuse me. Um, is there any other information you'd like to share or? Um, I think that's it. Um, when we get the, you know, get the runners all lined up, we'll definitely go over some protocol and such. And then being married to a Marine, well, he was in the Marines, but once a Marine, always a Marine. He's given me all kinds of tips on hiking and stuff and how when they used to go on their hikes, they, you know, go 30, over 30 miles a day. And they would, like, hike for 45 minutes, stop for 15, take a break, you know, eat, drink, whatever, change socks. So we're going to um, implement some of that into this whole um, project and just have it very tight and clean and and we don't want anybody getting hurt or, you know, we just want it, we want it good, <laughs> to be good for everybody and and uh, positive. So sorry, I have kids about me. Anyway. All right. Well, cool. Yeah, so do you have any other questions or is that pretty much it? Uh, no, I'm, I think I, I don't have anything else, Shay. Yeah, I think I'm good. I think uh, you know, um, we'll uh, hopefully get some runners lined up for you, and 
Excellent. Get, get this thing going. So uh, good luck, Sounds Cindy, good. and congrats on, on your new uh, one One more thing for you. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Great. Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot for, for uh, joining us and uh, and um, reaching out. Appreciate it. Okay. Great. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, okay. Bye. So, Shane, you were going to call our uh, our friend, our guest today. Do you have yes, his number I, handy? I do, and I'll I'll uh, call him now. All right. Hello. Ooh, Mr. Rettman Mullis, please. That would be me. <laughs> Hi, Rhett. How are you? This is Gunner. Hi, Gunner. We got Shane thanks here. For, thanks for the coffee, man. It kept me alive all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of kind of a, a chilly ice here out there. So. Yeah. Well, you know, if it wasn't for uh, having to chase the wild man through the woods, and you know that would that would be Larry Turner. And then I met the wild woman of the woods. That would be Tanya. So they they kept my they kept my blood going pretty good. But at night. That was a, I was an icicle. I was an icicle. So, yeah. Welcome, welcome to Tillamook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like it, it out there. there till, I thought that was cold till I went up to the Olympic project uh, last year, and it was like twenty six degrees the the first night we mm-hmm. were there. And yeah, I know Larry said he had ice on the inside of his tent. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was amazing when we came down off that hill today. That how much frost and ice was everywhere so yeah we got below freezing last night too but we made it through you know it'll be okay i don't need those fingers <laughs> anyway that's good that's what so so Rhett, you're the the um, president of bigfootology um what tell give us a little bit of background on on uh how that came to be and and what bigfootology does well, it's simply put, it's an offshoot of my original organization, which I created back in the late 80s, called SIR Bigfoot, Sasquatch Investigations and Research, which actually started in Utah. And then I moved back to Washington State, and I kept getting more and more involved in doing field stuff, especially after my first marriage was over. And um, that just gradually progressed. Over the years, I was doing a lot of field projects, a, little, a lot of uh, some experiments out in the field, kind of like what your group does. They actually, you actually guys do real experiments, not just happenstance stuff. And uh, after 9-11, I lost my business, so I decided to go back to school. And in doing so, to finish my degrees, uh, in doing so, I was officially designated as a scientist because of my disciplines and my degrees by the universities. And I figured, well, I guess since I'm a official designated scientist, yippee skippy, who cares? Um, I might as well take this more seriously than a Bigfoot community, especially since I was approached about four or five years ago by a certain Bigfoot group on Facebook. Um, and I was just getting on Facebook at that time. And they asked me to, they, they found me, they knew me from years ago. They found me and asked me to come consult for their team. And 
that started snowballing, and out of that, I figured, well, you know, I might as well take this seriously again. And I had that old defunct SAR Bigfoot website still sitting there. So I took that down, and I decided to use a term I started coining back in the early 90s when people would ask me what I do. I'd say, I study Bigfoot, Bigfootology. That's where that came from. And so I decided to use that, and uh, we formed a nonprofit in Washington State. So we're officially a nonprofit organization, and it's, we're scientifically based. And it has quickly grown into an international community. We have representatives uh, almost on every continent. And uh, we have representatives across North America. Um, and most of the people on our team have some kind of scientific discipline or some kind of specialty which enhances the the scientific approach to the team. Because anybody who's really ever worked within science itself realizes that the guy in the lab coat can't do anything without the people and associates helping him do the work. You know, so we have to rely on those people that are in the field more often than we can be to help collect data, to collect information, and so on and so forth. So part of Bigfootology was not only bringing people like that together, scientists with field experts, that type of thing, but also to start encouraging other teams to who claim that they do research to get off. What, I, it's, what they really do is what I consider being a tourist because they're really not going out there to learn anything. They're going out there to cast something or to try and get a print or try and photograph something, that's like going to an animal theme park and saying, I researched bison today because I saw a bison on the side of the road or I saw a bison track. That's not research. So uh, that's why I encourage, and as Big Phenology, what we try to do, we encourage teams to take a more scientific approach, a more methodology, a better methodology in their approach, which is one of the reasons why one of the groups that we support is the Tilikum Forest Research Group and the Olympic Project, because they do, both, both the organizations do an outstanding job actually doing real field research, not just being a tourist. I got you. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you have quite an impressive uh, membership in uh, in Bigfootology. So um, how did you get, how did you come to, to be interested in Bigfoot and, and the, the subject in the first place? Well, that all started 38 years ago, and we had moved. My dad got stationed to Whidbey Naval Air Station in 1976. We'd just come up from living in San Francisco on Treasure Island, but before then, we pretty much spent most of our lives in the desert, and so I didn't even know what a Bigfoot was. never even heard of such a thing, and I was 10 years old when we first moved to Whidbey Island, and that following summer in 77, my aunt, cousin, and her partner came up from Portland. And so we all went. They went in their vehicle. My dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, and I were in our vehicle. And we took the ferry run that goes from Seattle up to Victoria, British Columbia. So it was like a three-and-a-half, four-hour run. I forget exactly how long it was. But it takes you out of Elliott Bay, going north through the um, – Admiralty Inlet across San Fuca and, of course, to Vancouver Island, which is British Columbia, to Victoria there. And uh, my mom was handicapped, so she pretty much she always stayed in the car anyway, so my dad would stay with her. 
and my aunt and then would stay with them and keep her company. But I was meandering about the ferry. And as ferries go, there's there's neither a fore or an aft because it's it's reversible. But if you were to pinpoint it in terms of we were growing north through the Admiralty Inlet, which is between Whidbey Island and um, Port Angeles there, I was on the observation deck, which is right above the car deck of the ferry, on what would be the starboard or right aft or rear side of the ferry. And there had to be at least 15, 20 of us back, back there. And I was actually looking out across to the west where Port Angeles was. And somebody started saying, hey, look at that. Look at that over there. And so we all pretty much followed where this person's finger was pointing. And across, swimming across the wake of the ferry was this massive black man. And people were going, saying things like, well, is, is that a whale or is that a seal? And somebody's trying to, well, if it's a whale, it's got arms. You know, whales don't have arms. And this thing was doing like a modified crawl stroke as it was going through the water. And about two years ago, I took Dr. Brian Sykes on one of the ferry rides up to Orcas, and we were passing by one of the islands, and I was replaying to him the scenario. And it occurred to me, even 20-some-odd, or even 30-some-odd years later, that uh, that thing, that, that Bigfoot, had to be waiting in the water, waiting for the ferry to pass, because it was swimming that fast. And it was not that far away, maybe at most two, 300 yards of that. And it was making good speed across the wake of that ferry run. But we were still moving away, and we lost sight of it probably about uh, 10, 15 minutes later, something like that. So as it approached the shore, we'd be island. And that prompted me for many, many, many years to realize that Whidbey Island was a waypoint for a crossing between uh, the Olympic Peninsula and or the Olympic Mountain Range as well as the Cascades. And then over the 37 years of doing this, 38 now, I have used various sightings throughout Whidbey Island and Skagit County to trace somewhat of a rudimentary path which they take using the island as a waypoint. And that was further settled by sightings that were being documented by my little group back in the late back in the mid nineties where they were being seen crossing certain parts of Whidbey Island. And of course in nineteen ninety eight when I had that screamer right outside of my house down in the Admiral's Cove area of the island. So, so all these things started falling into place, putting pieces together, saying, okay, they are using this island as a waypoint from traveling from point to point. So that's, that's how it developed over the years, and that's, that's where it came from. In 97 was when I saw my second Bigfoot, and she was sitting in a quarry pond. And I actually talked about that on Friday night when we were camping. I think it was Friday night. You guys still there? Yep, I'm here. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just, got, just got really quiet. I have myself muted because I'm, I'm, I've been coughing, so I don't want to cough in your ear. <laughs> okay. Well, that's cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. But if I cough in your ear, it's because I'm rude and I'm noxious. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So. But that's uh, – so you – so tell us a little bit about your second sighting you had the that was in the, the quarry. Right. 
I, my research partner back then was a 63-year-old ADAC Indian, and he's still alive. I just came across him just about a year or two ago, and um, his name is Jerry Holman. And he actually was teaching a lot about tracking and, and natural science, that type of thing. He was a great guy. But his sister, who was even older than he is, uh, managed the quarry pond at the – or the quarry because she was like the caretaker of the property because it wasn't being used. Uh, down on the Tulalip Reservation, which is Marysville, Washington. And he was telling me that she had told him that she frequently had contacts with Bigfoots and on the property, including they would like when she they had replaced her trailer with a new single white trailer. And it was coming up, typical Bigfoot behavior, would come up, look in the window, slap the side of the trailer, and move on, scare the crap out of her a little bit, and then they move on. But he had told me that she had not had any kind of interaction in a year. And I said, well, you know, hey, it's a beautiful Saturday. you got nothing better to do. It's, you know, it's Washington State summer. So let's go down there and check it out. So me, my girlfriend at the time, her son, um, and Jerry went down, met his sister, and we interviewed her in the trailer, and she laid it all out. And it was, we, just, we just knew that we were just basically investigating an old, an old at that point, an old encounter. And then I said, well, let's go check this out where usually, because she says she always sees them down in the quarry pond area or they're up there by her trailer. So we got out of the trailer and we went down to the driveway, which is probably no more than 30, 40 feet, turned onto their little dirt road. And as you turn to the dirt road to go towards the quarry pond, there's a patch of old growth forest for about 60, 70 feet that creates this canopy above the road. It was quite nice, actually. And as I was walking down there, well, we were all walking down there, that's when I got that heavy equine musky smell. And I thought, oh, okay, we got something going on here. So as usual, I went to the right, which is the wrong direction. I always go the wrong direction first. And I went to the right, went to the woods part there. There wasn't anything in there. So I doubled back across the road. And they're all watching me trying to figure out what, what Rhett's doing. So I walked over the other side into the woods. And I've got no more than maybe five feet in. And it was still, to this day, one of the largest nesting grounds I had ever seen, enough for four or five full adults to be there. And so I looked at it, and sure enough, but it looked old. It did, none of it looked fresh. So I said, okay, we're definitely inspecting an old habitat. And so I came back in the, in, into the dirt road, and I explained to him what was going on. And so we went further down the road. And as you clear that old growth, that dirt road takes a hard right, 90-degree right turn, where this outbuilding is like a big garage. And then next to the garage is this quarry pond. And then on the side of the quarry pond is this little row of trees, some like leftover pines, I guess is a windbreak of some type. And then it opened up into this massive quarry area, massive, this quarry cliff. And beyond that was all forest. And behind the quarry pond and behind that outbuilding was forest. And so half of the quarry pond it was it was divided by this massive raspberry bush, this tall dome raspberry, blackberry, whatever it was, bush. And the other half of that quarry pond was all lily pads. And so as we rounded this 90-degree turn, we're, we cleared the outbuilding. We're walking parallel to the quarry pond. And that's when Jerry turns and points and says, look at and yells, look at that. And we all turn at the same time. And there's this female sitting in this quarry pond. 
Now, I used to speculate for a long time that she was in there cleaning herself, but then I realized, no, these are cold weather creatures. In a warm Washington day, she was cooling herself, which is why we tend to see these animals in rivers, lakes, and ponds on a warm day because they're there cooling themselves, even swamps, they're cooling themselves. And so he turned and said, look at that. We all turned and saw this female, and in one very gracious move, she stood up effortlessly, took one step, and she was behind that blackberry bush. And Jerry and I, at that point, we ran. This guy's 63 years old, and he was making me look slow. Ran down that side where the trees were. And we got to where she was, and we could see where she had been sitting because all the lily pads were compressed down, making this black hole in the water. And then we could see where she stepped because there were black holes in the water compressed, where the lily pads were compressed there. And then we, we could see her walking her back into the woods at that point. And I saw the road that came down from the back of the courier, and I told Jerry to stay there. And I ran down, got my Jeep, pulled up and around, picked him up, and we saw going through the woods a very old um, road, probably an old forestry road. And so we went down this road, not even doing a mile an hour. We were just creeping along. And by that time, I'd already broken out all my sound listening equipment, very sensitive stuff. And we're tracking this thing through the woods. And it was going, you know, doing a snap, crackle, pop. And at one point, I even told Jerry, I said, we need to hold our breath for a minute because I can't tell if it's us being overly excited or if it's her. And so we held our breath, but sure enough, it was still going, and snap, crackle, pop. We did this for an hour, maybe even a little bit longer, until we finally lost her. And the, and the interesting part is we lost her in a clear-cut area, a clear-cut area where they just cleared all the trees out. And what I like to tell people is if you go up to Marysville, you can see where we lost her at because what sits there now is a Walmart, a casino, you know. So all that had been clear-cut for all that building at that point in time, which, which I also talk about because I also tell that to people to put out the point that you don't have to go far to encounter these things because they are so insatiably curious about us that they risk their own selves to cross into our areas and our territory. You just have to be willing to look and pay attention. You may be surprised at what you see and find. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting stuff. Um, I wanted to go back to the nesting grounds as you described them. Um, what do you describe as a, a, a nesting area or nesting ground? Um, what would that include? It's an area that's been built up where they sleep. So they'll use grass, they'll use ferns, sometimes they use uh, extended branches of fir trees, kind of like a padding. And it, it's exactly what it looks like. It looks like a nest. And it's a lot different from, say, what we what I call a lounge area, where they may hang out during during the day someplace. We see a lot of that up on the Lummi, big, massive areas where they just kind of hang out and do nothing. And that's different from where they sleep. So where they sleep is what we call the nest because, it, again, it looks like a nest. Is that similar to, say, um, some of the uh, great apes or anything like that? Yeah, like gorillas do that too. You yeah. bet. And that's yeah. one of the things I've done all these years is I, because of my discipline, most of the work that we do is what you would consider anthropological or what we call qualitative, which is anecdotal stuff. You pull out trends out of data and you start – you're able to come up with safe assumptions or conclusions based off of those trends. And over the years, 
in doing so, uh, we're able to pull out a lot of different information that we can pretty much surmise is accurate. We can't ever say 100%, but it's accurate. Like we know they're bipedal, we know they're 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 hairy, we know they're primateish. But one of the things I used to do when I would see certain behavior pop up time and time again is I would go look into the regular animal kingdom, usually primate, and see if there was ever mimic behavior or or similar behavior elsewhere. Like I used to read stories of their hunting patterns and the way where they would hunt. And I thought, well, that's pretty intelligent, pretty anomalous. But then one year, uh, this is going back about, oh, geez, I guess almost uh, 18 years ago, um, I was watching this documentary on one of the science channels, and they were talking about monkeys and how they hunted. And I sat there just, I couldn't believe it. I was watching these monkeys hunt the exact same way Bigfoot's hunt. You know, they have a driving team, they have a kill team, they have, you know, you know, um, what do we call, um, I'm having a brain fire here, but, you know, where they kind of narrow down, narrow all the monkeys, other monkeys into a certain area, and then the kill team would be there to capture and kill. And we've seen that many, many times in many different uh, hunting depictions or, or stories, encounters for Bigfoot. So we're able to look at other other primates and say, okay, well that makes sense. This helps us make sense of this Bigfoot behavior. So it does let us to believe that yes, they're they're definitely primates. We always know that by their hair quality that they're primates. We know that by the dermal patterns on their foots and their on their feet and their in their hands that they're primates. So all these things point to a certain conclusion that we can come by honestly and say that's the way it is. That's what it is. Yeah, I believe it's uh, chimpanzees that actually are the ones that really do a lot of that sort of hunting. Um, I believe you're right, yes. Yeah, chimpanzees. But what, what, what are your thoughts on some of the, you know, because Bigfoot's associated or at least talked about hunting around clear cuts a lot. I mean, that's mentioned a lot. Uh, it's been in some, uh, some there are witnesses that have come forth saying they've seen this sort of thing. Uh, do you have any thoughts on clear cuts in general and possibly why they'd be hunting around there? Sure, it's pretty easy to it's pretty easy to break down on that one. You know, simply put, all animals, I don't care whether you're human or otherwise, all animals um, follow the path of least resistance. This is why we see a lot of Bigfoot encounters and animals using man-made clear-cut areas, including electrical corridors, because it does make it easier for them to get by. And you know, you're talking about animals where food is not that plentiful anyway. And so you have something as large as a Bigfoot or an elk or a bear, they want to use uh, methods of travel that's going to be less strenuous. That way they can preserve their own calories. So it's one of these things where we have deer, we have elk, we have other animals that do that. Uh, you know, animals that burrow and, and fall in trees and stuff like that, and that's all food. And so, of course, whenever, wherever you have food, you're going to find predators, you know, the, the good thing about predators, or the, I should say good thing, the interesting thing about predators is they can enter those animal-rich areas at their discretion and then move off and avoid that. This is why we see what we would call a lounge area often near a game trail. So, you know, a flattened out, well-used area where Bigfoot will sit and wait for game to come by and make an easy kill. Um, so it's not that it's not that difficult to surmise why there's such a huge... Uh, amount of sightings in those type of areas. So yeah. if anything, you know, if I, if I can be kind of 
uh, somewhat joking for a little bit. You know, it's like uh, it's like looking at the movie The Life of Brian, and you have the Jews are doing their treasonous meeting, you know, the Jewish Judeo Front or whatever it is, uh, you know, Freedom for Jews or whatever it is, and they're all talking about the Romans and, well, what have the Romans done for us lately? Well, they did give us the alphabet and they gave us plumbing. Yeah, but what else are they giving them? You know, I kind of look at that in terms of, of humans because, like, what is, you know, what is, I can see them up there on the hillside going, what are those the humans have done for us? Well, um, they do leave food behind, <laughs> you know, uh, they do make it easier for us to get around because they make these roads and dirt roads and, you know, that's, uh, anyway, so I just, I just, sometimes <laughs> I try to look at this from a humorous aspect, but, um, so I can see them sitting around doing that, but anyway, so yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty, pretty obvious stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, um, hunters, as a hunter, you know, you clear cuts are a great area to hunt, you got a lot of fresh grass in those areas because the sun the sunlight's hitting those areas, so it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. You know, I actually learned something from Larry this weekend that I didn't know. Um, and this is one of the reasons why we have different field experts on our team, because we all learn from each other. And Larry is telling me about how, because they have a lot of plants out there, fresh plants, you know, the, they, he says he likes to hunt elk through there because they'll come along, pull those sleeves off, and eat those sucklings. I'm like, oh, yeah. Okay, there you go then. That is, so I learned even... So even I learned something new this, from Larry this weekend, which would validate everything that we just did, so or anything we just said. So it's great. It's absolutely fun going out there and learning from people. Yeah, it, you you know it's funny you mentioned that sapling. Uh, we were Gunner and I um, uh, a while back were checking out a report uh, in Tillamook uh, further on the coast, and uh, this guy had a sighting of a Sasquatch um, climbing this hill. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I decided, you know, it's pretty steep. It was a clear cut. It was pretty steep, pretty treacherous, all sorts of junk in the way. And uh, we got up to, we took a road up to the top of, of where this sighting had occurred, and I decided to scale down it. And uh, on my way down, you know, I, I, found, I found some very, very interesting impressions. And mm-hmm. right next to one of those saplings that had been planted was a very interesting impression. It was in the general area this guy described this thing going up the hill. Um, but the sapling had been twisted, uh, not, not twisted, but uh, like it was almost trying to be, uh, around the root ball, it was a big circle. It's like something had grabbed it and just went in circles for a while and, and to try and maybe pull it out. I don't know, but it just was pr- pretty clear around the base. Uh, and there was a very interesting impression there. And, you know, it took me, took me a good 15 minutes to get down this, this hillside. And this guy that described, uh, the Sasquatch said it took, took the Sasquatch to climb up there uh mere seconds. <laughs> so I was I was oh, yeah, that's, uh, that whole yeah. whole pretty amazing. Mhm. Well yeah, when you look at their physiology and their body and how it's shaped, um, you know, their gluteus are massive and they need to have massive glutes because they're using so much leg strength to push their huge torso up these hillsides and uh or down these hillsides, but mostly, you know, however. But so they, you, it makes sense when you start looking at things like the patty film, and you go, well, yeah, she's got a pretty big butt. Okay, well, there's a reason why she has a pretty big butt, and just like there's a reason why most male Bigfoots are described as bodybuilders. Well, it's because they, that's their life. They have, they live that every day. They have to traverse things that you and I would look at and go, no, not me. But they do it like it's nothing because they've conditioned themselves to be that way on a daily basis to traverse that way. Yeah, um, it's it's 
pretty amazing to me a lot of the uh, behavior associated with Sasquatch. A lot of it you can look at nature and uh, you know and, and get some ideas on why they're they're doing things. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the slapping behavior, and we talked about this over the weekend while you were you're kind of hanging out with us uh, about the slapping behavior. You know, slapping buildings and such. Uh, this happens mm-hmm. to uh, this has happened to um, James Million uh, up at the Olympic Project when he was staying in his camper. Uh, this has happened to Derek and Tori Randall's a few times when they're staying up at the uh, mm-hmm. property. Um, uh, why do they come by and slap buildings? Uh, is it do you know? Are they 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 know you're in there and they're slapping it? Is it just to be fun, toying? What's your opinion? Well, yeah, uh, yeah. Tanya was there when we were talking about that. Remember? Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, she came up with a good point, which can be easily validated, and that is. Um, well, she had asked me about that, and what I had stated was that, you know, I think they do it just because uh, they're not really aware of their own strength and presence. So when they come up to a building and lean up against it, they're they're not really, you know, they're used to things that are really sturdy, like trees, when they come up and lean up against a tree, and they come up and lean something as flimsy as the side of a building, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a different sound, it's going to have a different... Well, they're just not going to be aware of their own strength and their own ability and what how they sound against these things. But at the same time, um, there's that acoustic value that Tanya brought up, which is very you know which which is a good point. And they may strike this to see just exactly what it is because it is going to sound different than, say, a tree or a rock, you know. And it's definitely going to feel different from a solid tree or a rock when they hit this thing that's so big. And then they realize, oh, this is kind of flimsy, and so maybe they're just they're just testing it, going, well, what really is this? It doesn't sound like a rock when I hit it. it doesn't sound like a tree when I hit it. it. You know, it sounds like an empty box. It's not, not that they would know what an empty box is, but it's going to sound differently acoustically. So I think she had a valid point on that, and that's worth mentioning. So, um, so, but half the time, I think even humans we're not even aware of what we do half the time. We just do it and not think about it. But slapping the sides of buildings and stuff like that, that's a very, very common behavioral trait. Um, you know, we Everywhere we go, we get that, whether it's a cabin or, an, or a trailer, an RV, uh, even tents. You know, they're, 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 they're testing stuff just like we do. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you curiosity. Know, it, Exactly. Yeah, curiosity. Um, and but they seem to, you know, up in the Olympics, they seem to do it repeatedly. Uh, they'll come by, and it's always around the same time, or at least reported at the same time. It's always about two o'clock in the morning or so. Uh, <laughs> with James, with with James Million, you know, he's a part of the Olympic project core member. He um, and he's always been very skeptical, um, and he's still mm-hmm. skeptical. But he, uh, you know, he was alone at the cabin on the property, and heard this smack and he said he thought there was an accident i mean it was that loud a smack on the side of the building mm-hmm. he, you know he, mm-hmm. he woke up um he ran outside and he hears something <laughs> call him butt across the field and into mm-hmm. the um tree line so he's you know he's uh he's a brave guy he's uh, a lifelong hunter that guy's really not afraid of anything is and that was the guy that was naked under- i'm just kidding <laughs> just just about he's in his underwear he had he, he had his dog with him and he runs up the tree uh-huh. line the dog kept trying to cut him off. His dog kept trying to cut him off. He's had his dog forever. He kept trying to cut him off. And his dog's mm-hmm. been around bears and everything else. And James gets up to the tree line and he hears this thing in there. And then he hears just this 
a crazy whoop, just like a whoop, you know, uh-huh. nuts. And 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 he he just was flabbergasted, and he realized he's out there in his underwear in you know two o'clock in the morning. Um, his dog had taken off running after that, and he decided he better head back. He wasn't armed, having on him, he head back. And uh, you know, next day he went out there and found impressions and a uh, bunch of torn up wood. So, uh, you know, but. Uh, Back to the slapping thing, you know, it happens to Derek and them a lot up there when they're, you know, because they go up there mm-hmm. quite frequently. Um, it happens quite frequently with them, and it's always about the same time in the morning. And I always laugh. I said, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are probably snoring away sleeping, and he hears you snoring and just slaps the building and takes off yeah, running. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's out of all the things that have happened to me over the last 38 years, that's only happened to me once. And that actually happened about, I think, three or four years ago up in the Lummi. I was sleeping in our contact's house up there, and he's this first floor where his sleep or his sleeping uh, couches were uh, was the second floor, and we had just gotten back from doing a very very late night session. I think we got back at like two o'clock in the morning, maybe three in the morning, and I had just fallen asleep, and I was laying. Ronnie Roseman was on one couch. I was on the couch. I was next to the outside wall. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, something came along and hit that outside wall at my level, second floor, so hard it shook the couch and almost knocked me out of the couch. But it woke me straight up. So, But it was pretty dark out there, and we didn't see anything. So, But it was, it was pretty astounding. So more than likely what it does is I'm thinking on some occasion it probably does a run by and slap, kind of like kind of like a kid running through the wood, you know, running along a fence and putting its hand in all the little picks, you know, just kind of something to do. Um, the sensory stimuli thing type of thing, but um, and I they probably do something like that too, so just to pass the time, right? But now, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, of course, all we can do is speculate because the they haven't shared with us what their their intention. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, that but there are there hold on there are factions in the Bigfoot community. That if you ask them, they'll just mind melt with these and get the answer for you. <laughs> sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'll probably get lots of hate mail now for that. So, yeah, your mind's melting now. Yes, my mind is melting now. I'll have nightmares of Bigfoot, you know, cursing me in my sleep. So, but uh, I mean, they have other strange behavior because there's another is like rocks being thrown into water. I investigated mm-hmm. a report where where uh, a gentleman had lived across from the Halem River and he came out and the water was really high and and he mm-hmm. heard this hooting. At first he thought it was an owl, um, but then he hears something moving along the bank across the the river and he hears kerplunk, kerplunk, mm-hmm. and and it was he described it as large rocks being thrown into the river. So mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, and, and, that, and that, there's been numerous stories of, of like that where somebody's been around water and and mm-hmm. it, it sounds like rocks are being thrown into the water so oh, oh yeah i've had that happen a few times yeah, yeah so if it's you know what what the purpose of is it the you know i i i wondered i my theory for that on that particular night was like they were trying to find a place to cross and uh mm-hmm. because it, the water was extremely high at at that point yeah. but well you know the uh, the the, the the interesting thing, uh, Gunnar, is we humans have to have a congruent sense about what's going on around us. And mm-hmm. what we sometimes can't just accept is the fact that they may be doing something just for the hell of it. 
Right. So, you know, it's got to have a reason why they're doing No, it doesn't, actually. Um, you know, sometimes there is a reason, sometimes it's not. It's not like they have Game Boys out there and they can kill their time, you know, shooting zombies in some foreign country. You know, they're, they can get very bored and tedious with what limited uh, stimuli they have. And so for them, fun may be twisting trees. Uh, fun for them may be um, beating sticks or beating rocks on each other or or what have you. Now, we try to sit there and go, oh, well, they, we associate, you know, and I do this too. We associate rock clacks and wood knocks, and I have a certain theory about all that too, which I, haven't, I don't think I've told you guys yet. But um, but sometimes they just do things because this is something to do. Um, when I was, last time I had rocks blocked, uh, rocks being thrown in the water for us was, again, we were up on the Lummi about three years ago uh, with the film crew, and it was late at night. We were walking down the Smokehouse Road, which has uh, ponds there. And here it is, you know, midnight or better, uh, pitch black out there. And we're hearing several very large splooshes. And rocks, when they enter the water, make a very distinct sound. It's not like a beaver spack, you know, where the beaver hits its tail in the water and makes it look like a pop, a pop sound. But a, a rock going into the water makes a like a splooch you know, type of sound. And these are very obviously, from the sound of it, very large rocks being thrown in the water. Well, there's no animals out there that will do that, you know. And the last time I saw a bear do that was on uh, Nogi, and he was trying to go after a picnic basket. So, and I don't think this was a cartoon world. So, you know, that leads us to, it, that triggers us in the realm of inclusive versus exclusive evidence. So when you look at it in a situation, uh, you look at what possibly can be first, and when you eliminate all that, then whatever's left has to be the reality of what's going on. And so if you eliminate the idea that, okay, that wasn't hitting its tail in the water because it's a completely different sound. So it was definitely something being thrown in the water. All of us are accounted for. We're not tossing rocks because, hello, it's the middle of the night. We're on a dirt road, and we're on a projection towards the goal down the road. Uh, so what's doing this? There's no bear there. I've never seen an elk throw a rock or a deer throw a rock, and there's no elk there. And there's there's cows around, but there's no cows right there. They don't throw rocks either. So it's a point of elimination. Like, for example, one morning um, we were shooting flare and thermal across the um, um, land bridge that goes over to Portage Island, Sacred Isle on the Lummi. And we had known about the fact that there were still some feral cows on the island, even though they tried to get rid of them a few years back. But we knew because we had been able to track them. We found the prints. We found the cow pies. But what was interesting, we also found several Bigfoot tracks, which supported the idea that they are capable of herding animals and managing animals like that. So 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, my associate on the Lummi and I were shooting clear in um, – across, and we're seeing these very large thermal hits on the northwest um, field right before the land bridge begins. When the tide comes in, the, the land bridge goes away and the tide goes out. You can drive across it. And so we're watching these very large thermal hits, at least, uh, somewhere around a dozen, frolicking in this field. And I'm telling my associate, you know, these could be those cows because cows will frolic like that. Then all of a sudden, I started laughing, and because there was these two 80-foot cedar trees right there where that field is, that you can see clearly in the flear and the thermal, and all of a sudden, two of those cows are on a race 
up the top of these cedar trees. And I'm laughing. I'm going, oh, I've never seen a cow climb a tree before. You know, so it kind of it took everything out. There's no other animals on the island except the Bigfoots that we knew out there and the, uh, and the cows. And, hello, cows didn't climb. And it wasn't like eagles because, hell, it was, it was 4 o'clock in the morning. Eagles aren't going to be flying anyway. And we watched these things actually climb these trees and stay up there for a while before they came back down. So, and they climbed up and they climbed down. They didn't fly off. So you have inclusive versus exclusive evidence. We are able to inclusively say it's not an eagle. Now, if they're, you know, it's not can't be cows because cows can't climb. So what does what does that leave out? It leaves one thing left, and then we know that there's Bigfoot on the island. So that was the family of Bigfoot that we've been monitoring that whole time. So pretty amazing stuff, actually. So you you say you've identified an area up in up Whitby Island that they travel through regular. You think you've got a like the regular route? You know, I have a pretty good like idea. Well, yes, what their what the route is. Yes, and it's taken and, me thirty years of encounters to figure out what that is, and even having my own experience. So yes, I have a I have a very rough route. Yeah, and that are you have an idea of what? their time frame is and when they're on that route at certain times or that I don't know that, yeah. Yeah, that I that I think it's I think it doesn't matter the time of the year because for example when I had the screamer outside of my house in Admiral's Cove that was November December when we saw the one swimming across the um, Puget Sound that was the summertime when we had other encounters going on, on the south side of the island that was spring and summer when we had the screamers up on the northwest part of the northeast part of the island, <coughs> which got us all up at one o'clock in the morning, and that was a very interesting investigation the next day too. Um, that validated where I thought they were coming to the shore across from Skagit County, from the Skagit, Skagit River. That was proving valid at that point as well, and um, so we were able to over the years trace specific paths. There are a couple places on the island where I'm still not sure whether they're on the east or the west side, whether they're traversing. But like one of those paths, okay, this is something I don't talk about very often. I actually brought it up the first time last summer at Beachfoot with the with that uh, West's radio program. And I was trying to figure out because a very narrow part of the island is where Penn Cove is. And Highway 20 goes through there. And then you've got that that inside road that follows you into the downtown Coopville area, which is where the actual Penn Cove shoreline is. And then on the outside is mostly forest, and you have an old uh, part of the fort out there, uh, Fort Eby's out there, which is not very, it's a very small area. And then you have some houses. Mostly it's all old growth forest through there. Um, there are some housing now in that old growth forest area too, but the only other thing there is you have two electrical corridors that cut through there, one on the west side of the island and one on the east side. And we're talking about a land area of maybe a half mile, three-quarter, maybe at most a mile wide. Okay, so it's not a lot of a lot of room. So you've got forest, two electrical corridors, one on the east side, one on the west side. The main highway, uh, you have some uh, hiking trails through there. And then when you get on the east side, you have the Penn Cove area. So it's a very narrow area. And back then, this is um, 2008, I was doing, I was working 
at the mental health clinic in Coopville, and my office was up in Oak Harbor. So every morning I would travel back and forth that route from Coopville to Oak Harbor. And sometimes I'd have to work all day in Coopville, and I'd come home that, via that route. Well, when you're coming up around the north part of the EB Landing area, you can actually look up that eastern electrical corridor that runs adjacent to the road, which runs adjacent to the Penn Cove. You know, there are people there. No way beyond they know exactly what I'm talking about. There's usually a lot of cows out there. Well, on the on the west side of the highway. Well, this electrical corridor is on the east side of the highway. And again, for, for like a minute as you're driving down the highway, you can look straight up this electrical corridor, which is surrounded by forests on both sides. Now, process of elimination. We know there's no bear on the island. We know there's no elk island. There's lots of deer on the island. So one thing that I don't ever talk about, because I've never been able to validate this, is something that completely anomalous happened this day. It was, I was coming home late in the afternoon. And I happen to, it's a habit, we Bigfooters always have this habit. We're always looking to the left and the right, seeing what we can see, even when we're driving. And, but in this case, when I looked up the corridor, I didn't have to look to the left or right because the corridor is pretty much in front of us until we were off to the left. And I see this massive brownish auburn hair fur ball, basically sitting in a fur ball position. And I'm sitting there going, well, did I just see that? And, uh, and of course, I was in the traffic, so I couldn't stop. But uh, so for like a minute, I'm watching this massive, and I'm not talking about a, a deer. I'm not talking about even the size of, say, like a black bear. This massive football just itself sitting, you know, trying to with his back towards everything, almost like it was hiding up this electrical corridor. And so I've never been able to validate whether that is – a Bigfoot or not, but the process of elimination is there wasn't much else that it could be because no animals ever used that corridor anyway. But what it did is what it did leave for me to say is okay, I used to think, I used to surmise they would travel on the west part of that part of the island because it was such a deeper and denser forest. But again, we're talking about the path of least resistance here, right? Path of least resistance would be a man made electrical corridor, and that corridor goes all the way down the island. So I even hunted that corridor further south at the OLF outlying field when I, my dad and I used to hunt when we were kids, when I was a kid. So over the years, it's just a process of elimination. Every time you get a new piece of information, a new piece of the story, uh, it helps you pinpoint um, what they're doing and helps you get a more complete picture of what they're doing. Gotcha. In so red side. Go ahead, Shane. Go ahead, Gunner. Okay, I was going to say. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit, Rep, about um, research techniques uh, and what you consider uh, essential research techniques in the field. You know, there's a there's a million uh, groups out there doing their thing. Some some are very uh, bring some very valuable information to the table, and they're doing things the right way. But what should you know, as a person going out to the field, what what sort of techniques should they, they be bring along with them? What should they be looking for? Um, and what should they expect? One of the things that I did a few years ago when I started up Bigfootology is I, I made a, a designation called the Recognized Bigfoot Research Apprentice. And I did that for a reason. 
and that is there are a lot of people that are in the field that do do a great job and know a lot. They know about tracking. They know about signs. They know about – and these people have been doing it so long that they've gotten past the whole Bigfoot does everything, Bigfoot behind everything, because it's not true. Very little that we see out there is Bigfoot behind or does. A lot of it's just uh, biased and hysteria. So you have to get past that discipline. And these people are the ones that we recognize in Bigfootology as saying, this is someone who is worthy of, of, of learning from. And this is like when uh, one of our first apprentice was Tommy Naff, who is now part of Bigfootology. And we encouraged him to get connected to other people, like the Olympic Project. He's been out there a lot. Because people like uh, Derek Randalls and Dave Ellis, they have valuable things to teach because they don't go out there shipshod and do things silly. They have a methodology, just like what uh, the Telecom Forest Research Group does. You guys have a methodology in place. You guys are even developing standard operating procedures, contingency plans, what happens if this happens. And even this weekend, I talked to you, Shane, and, and Larry, about uh, doing a few different things, and you guys are right on the money on this because you guys are already thinking of this stuff, which is why I'm so impressed with your group. So... It is. It's, it's a matter of planning. It's a matter of metho methodology. And what I was explaining to uh, Larry while we were out planting devices is the biggest mistakes that people make is they come up with a with a uh, plan, a experiment, and they think, well, just because it didn't work now, it doesn't work. No, you're just assuming they're there all the time. You need, to, you need to lay out a plan and be patient. They say if you're going to triangulate sound or video in a certain area, don't think that just because you didn't get it this night that they're not that, that failed. No. You need to keep doing that over a period of time. Then if it continues to not produce anything, then you've got something to say, okay, yeah, we did this for two weeks or we did this for six months and we never got anything, so it's time to change the location or change how we're doing this. Okay, but you have to be patient. Science is not a fast process. When we publish a paper, we make sure that we cover all aspects of what possibilities and what impossibilities there are. We make sure that we cover the gamut. And we, even if we don't cover the gamut, we have to detail in the paper possibilities beyond that. So other people can combine and say, okay, this is what they did. They, they they satisfy the null hypothesis, which means they couldn't come up with a valid hypothesis answer. And so we're going to deviate this experiment by trying this. And that's how science works. You take one, one experiment that maybe it worked or didn't work, and you build on it. You tweak it. You change it. And so that's what you guys are doing in the Telecom Forest Research Group, and that's what you need to keep doing. And, but just be patient. Keep trying it until you know that you've exhausted all possibilities. So the typical person, when they go out in the woods, they don't take the time to learn what a fresh break is, what you know, what is old xylem breaks, and what does fresh xylem breaks look like. You know, what what kind of hair are you looking for? If you're looking for clumps of hair, you've totally missed a boat. Primates don't not clump hair; they have strands of hair. So if you find strands of hair, that's a different thing altogether. That's a greater possibility than saying some a lump of hair that might have been shed off of some dog or whatever, deer or what have you, that's out there. Okay, so these little tiny nuances of just knowing the area, 
in knowing what's in the area, what the area supports in terms of other wildlife, will determine whether you're wasting your time or not. When One of the first things that I did when I started going back into the field back in the late 80s, early 90s, is I pulled out John Green's book, and I looked at his maps where all the encounters were, and I said, okay, well, there's the most clusters. That's where I'm going. And what's interesting is that's where I was having lots of, lots of these experiences and these encounters. So it's not rocket science. You just have to think these things through. Critical thinking skills are a must in any science. And so you go out there, you make your plan, you, you determine what you're going to do as an experiment, and you see if it works. And the one example I give about this is back in 93, 94, uh, I came up with this thought where I'm going to mark everything in my camping site. And so what I would do at night before I'd go to bed, I would take yellow chalk. Eventually I went to like a powder. And if I left my lamp on the um, picnic table, I would – do a, a circle around the base of the lamp. I would put a circle. I would outline where my cooler is. I would outline where my where my stove is, and I would outline where the feet of my chairs were, you know, on the ground. And I would outline these things because what I would wanted what I wanted to know was this: we know that when bear go through a camp, they make a lot of noise. They're very clumsy. They knock everything over. You know when a bear goes through. When raccoons come through, they do the same thing. They chitter, they make a lot of noise, they, they knock things over, they steal things, so on and so forth. But what I noticed over the years was when a Bigfoot came through, they were very quiet in most cases. They would pick something up and they would put something down. And, uh, or if they did pick something up and drop it, you couldn't tell what was going on with it, why and how, blah, 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 blah. But usually that wasn't the case. They were very um, secretive about what they were doing. So this is basic psychology. We understand that they have this insatiable curiosity, and, that's, and, so, and they also have this insatiable desire to be concealed. So we have to use that knowledge in order to design some kind of experiment to validate whether they're there or not. And so this is what I started doing. And I would get up the next morning, and my lamp would no longer be in its circle. It would be at the other end of the table, or it would be, you know, a few inches outside of that, or my cook stove was moved four inches, or my, uh, and I would also do things like set up where my um, cooler, if it was open, something would fall out. And so I would know if my cooler had been open the next morning, that type of thing. And so it, this is what I call the proximity experiment. It's really, really is a fun experiment. It's easy to do. Anybody can do it. It just takes, you know, a few minutes before they hit the rack at night to go mark everything, you know, what, what they need to do. And then when they go to bed at night, wake up the next morning, if stuff has been moved and it's been moved deliberately, then they know they probably have had a Bigfoot in their, in their camp that night. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And then another thing you do even to elaborate on that, if you really, really want to get elaborate on this, if you're in a campground that has, like, hard dirt, take a few sandbags out there with you and just lay it all around. And then when you, after you're done marking everything that night, take a quick uh, – take some fur and smooth out all that sand around your campsite. And then get up the next morning. If something's been moved, you'll also find prints because they're not aware of them making – print in that soft sediment. So it, that's a lot of fun and something very easily done. 
Um, and it's something anybody can do. Yeah. Um, to play a little bit of devil, devil's advocate here, now, now, what what are your thoughts on trail cameras? Uh, you know, as far as you know, if something like this is happening in camp. You set up a trail camera. Um, would that not help substantiate what is going on, or do you think they avoid trail cameras? Well, I've, I've talked about this before. Um, yes. You gotta understand again because I, because they're an alpha predator, and they have it's more it's it's a real realistic expectation that they have a greater visual and audio spectrum than we do. And so that's is why I believe that trail cams are failures out in the middle of nowhere. Because here you have these trail cams emitting sound and light that we don't hear. And But it, it's obvious from the trail cam photos that other animals hear and see it because they're actually focusing on the camera or interacting with the camera. Well, if you, if, if, if you have something a little higher intelligent than your average cougar, bear, or elk, and they want to avoid such anomalies, then they're going to avoid such anomalies. And so you're basically broadcasting, hey, we put something man-made out here that's totally anomalous. It doesn't belong here in the middle of nowhere. So we're going to have great pictures of elk having sex, but, hey, we're not going to catch a Bigfoot one iota because they're going to see that, that IR light and they're going to come in within that within that uh, lit area and just say, yeah, as far as I go because I don't want to get hit by the light or, you know, whatever. I don't know what this is. But what I do tell people is if you have what we would call a habituation site, which is where they tend to frequent a man-made object, whether it's a cabin or a home. We have a lot of this like up in the Stanwood area where they frequent the homes and cabins. They're used to man-made light out there. That's where I tell people, set up your trail cams. If you have that type of situation going on, they're not going to have any kind of second thought over another light source suddenly be there because they're used to you having light sources there. So set up your trail cams in those man there's areas that are made by man that are visited by these things. So again, cabins, uh, boats, uh, campsites, that type of thing, where they're used to there being uh, things attributed to man there, because they're not going to have a second thought. That's when you're going to have greater success with trail cams. I believe wholeheartedly that trail cams are are used incorrectly. And even even in that terminology and or in that uh, mindset, I've talked to you and a couple of other people. I think yeah, I think Larry actually and a couple of other people on the East Coast about trying different, and even in the West Eastern Washington about trying setting up camera traps, camera configurations. How I used to design when I used to be an engineer, I used to design camera traps into for prisons. And so there's a way of designing these cameras, setting them up to where. Uh, you can entrap anything, even if it's trying to be hidden or conspicuous. And as much as I've, if I, as I've preached this to many different groups to try, none of them yet to do it. It's like, okay, well, don't do it then. Then, but I'm telling you, this is this is going to work. You know, yeah. if we can catch hardened criminals in million-dollar, you know, facilities, uh, we can catch something using this camera trap system. And and I wish somebody would actually try and do that. Um, because they're going to have greater success. So using using trail cams. But again, you have to understand that it's all about location and it's all about what it is. So uh, and you can get animals used to certain things. Like, for example, let's say um, you have a spot in the middle of nowhere by a lake. Go out there and set up some low-level lights around these trees. And 
let them, let them set out there for go out there if you know the batteries are going to last a week then go out there every week and replace the batteries get whatever's out there whatever the animal is used to the fact that there are lights out there and they will become accustomed or habituated to know that those are lights are going to be there and they know that these just because those lights are there doesn't mean a human is there they get used to it so over time as they get used to it they're not going to have any other thought if you'll suddenly go up there and pop up some trail cams because they've already got used to the other little light that's there. And so they're going to think nothing of it. This is another example of a camera trap. So this is another example of using habituation to your advantage. So uh, it's, it's all about, just like with any scientific experiment, there's a degree of manipulation. You have your control group and you have your your group with the, with the independent variable in it where you're manipulating the group to determine what it's going to do. So, and that's all you're doing here. So uh, it's, it's just a matter of testing the experiment. And I'm, I've been hoping that, um, I've talked to the Ohio group about doing this a long time ago. I haven't heard anything back from them. Uh, I talked to some uh, team members we have out in eastern Washington and uh, they did try it, and but it, they had snowfall, and it was middle of winter, so it didn't have much much effect, and it didn't last very long. But uh, and I'm hoping that you guys will do it too when you finally start using a lot more cameras. Yeah, we, um, we do use cameras, uh, especially in the Olympics. You know, uh, the Olympic project actually we do a, quite. Uh, we do use a lot of techniques as far as um, hiding them uh, and and whatnot. Paul Graves. Uh, uh, is actually really uh, on top of his game when it comes to um, hiding trail cameras, and he's got some some good results, in my opinion. Um, you know, and uh, some of the core members of the project, you know, Derek Randall's and him placing trail cameras. There's always a lot of thought. It's not just going and dropping a trail camera up on a tree. There's always a lot of thought that goes into placing these trail cameras, um, um, and and whatnot. So, uh, you know, it, like like we were talking before. This sort of thing, it's science and whatnot. It's very tedious. It's time-consuming. It, it's boring at mm-hmm. times. Uh, but the end reward is, is so worth it, uh, especially for me when I come out and, and look at the data I've collected and look at what uh, may or may not be there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, It's very exciting stuff for me, and I, I just can't get enough of it. But, uh, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, you've been at this, um, Rhett, uh, a long time. And, uh, yeah, I've been at it. years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people out there, and a lot of people argue that uh, we're no closer to proving this thing exists than that may or may not be true. Um, but I think uh, we've made leaps and bounds, in my own opinion. And uh, there are people working together that avoid all the the arguing and whatnot, which is a plus, and can just look mm-hmm. at the science. We may we may disagree on on all approaches, but if you're coming at it from a scientific approach. Uh, and, and whatnot, then uh, that's a positive step in the right direction. Yeah, but you know, people that have experience working within the real science world realizes that the reason why science works so well is because we don't agree, and that's what keeps us honest. So, I mean, it keeps us accountable. It's like you know, this is this is your hypothesis and this is your conclusion, but when I look at your hypothesis and your data. This is the conclusion I come up with based on the secondary information over here, and that's just the way it should be. So you never don't just because you have two different scientists disagreeing with something 
doesn't mean that the science itself is bad. It just means that it's accomplishing what it should, and that's keeping each other honest and accountable and sharing perspectives. And that's what science is all about. This is why Bigfootology uh, doesn't say, you know, we have 60, 70 members, and, but we, part of Bigfootology is if you're a part of this team, we expect you to be a part of other teams as well. Because this is about sharing information and being responsible in our sharing of information and making sure that we're, we are, in the scientific process, able to replicate, thing, replicate things, which is why say, the, camera, the camera trap principle I was trying to put out, I put out to three different, three different teams. Give this a try. Do this and see what happens. Because if it doesn't work for one, it's probably not going to work for the other so on and so forth. But even then, just because it doesn't work in one weekend doesn't mean that it's a failure. It just means that maybe they weren't around that weekend. So you just have to keep trying over a period of time. So you set a certain pattern. You say, okay, we're going to try this experiment and we're going to be consistent with this experiment for a period of six months. We'll go through two seasons or a year. We'll go through a whole year. And pretty much within four or five, six months, you're going to know whether something's working or not or or if you're just wasting your time, then you can consider tweaking the experiment a little bit. But again, yes, you're right. Science is very tedious. So you have the generalized Bigfoot world community that has no concept of science, no concept of anything, that, anything based off of science, and they get so impatient. And this is why Bigfootology tends to stay under the radar most of the time, because we're only interested in the science. When we have something to report, we'll go public about it. Until then, we're not going to sit out there and make ourselves glory hounds by trying to make sure we're on every show and every and every broadcast that happens because it's just sharing the same old information over and over again. That gets boring, and not only does it get boring, but it also makes makes us a laughing stock. You know, the Bigfoot community as a whole, because we're constantly trying to uh, sensationalize something that shouldn't be sensationalized. It shouldn't be dramatized. It should be just matter of fact, just like looking at a cow. You look at a cow and go, yeah, that's a cow. It's got horns. It doesn't have horns. It's got udders. It doesn't have udders. That's a cow. Okay, we can identify a cow. Nobody gets excited about a cow. No one goes out there and goes on every show just to talk about a cow. All right? So, uh, so you don't sit there and sensationalize this because then all you're doing is discrediting the real work of other people. And and now what you have here, you have TV shows coming out left and right. Nothing's based off of any kind of sort of reality in the Bigfoot world. Most of it's just very comical. And that's just discrediting the rest of the Bigfoot community who's trying to, trying to take this seriously. And so, you know, it's great that, yeah, okay, we're improving the awareness of the existence of Bigfoot to a certain degree. But after five or six seasons of, of accomplishing nothing, all it's doing is for the rest of the world going, say, we told you there is no thing as Bigfoot. They can't find crap. You know, and they prove it every week on their show. So it's actually gotten to the point now where they're actually um, unraveling everything that they were originally trying to do, and that's bring light to the, to the actual existence of these creatures. So this is why it's just best to shut up, keep quiet, do your work behind the scenes, and when you have something to report, then report it. Don't just keep drumming up old stuff over and over and over again, okay? Because it doesn't accomplish anything. And I know that's yeah. not very popular to say, but you know what? I would rather be considered um, respectful and legitimate when I do speak 
than going, oh, there's that guy talking again. Oh, I'm just going to tune him out because he never says anything and it's always the same stuff over and over again. It's, it just doesn't accomplish anything. Yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah and, I, I mean, that, for me, Finding Bigfoot is entertainment. It's not It's not a, a show. Well, I wasn't going to mention the show, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's what I call not Finding Bigfoot. This is how not to do it. So, or, ch- but, yeah. chasing, or chasing Bigfoot. I mean, you know. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it, it's, <laughs> it is what it is. It's, it's entertainment, and that's, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, I yeah, that, entertain, that entertainment now is starting to give the Bigfoot community a black eye. See, it's just a hook. They can't I, find I, nothing. I, yeah. You guys are just chasing the wind. Right, and I, I mean, that's, I, I agree that it's it's reached its its tipping point. It's jumped, it's probably jumped the shark. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. And it, it, in the first season, I thought the format would, you know, play out. I mean, how long can this go on that you're going to go out and and run around the woods in the dark? And well, that's that's and, why I turned them down when they approached me. It's like I'm not even I'm not even thinking about doing this. So it's yeah, like, no, not going to waste my time. And I think I talked to talked to this about with this about Shane and Larry over the weekend about how the fact that uh, there are a lot of shows that I've turned down because I think the premise is totally stupid or idiotic. And it was like the Joel, like I was talking about Joe Rogan, that his thing, you know, I was the first one he approached and I was like, wait a minute, he's a comedian. How is he going to take this seriously? How can I take him seriously? And so when I started questioning Joe Rogan, that's when they were like, well, okay, well we'll find somebody else. And, and they did. They went to Matt Johnson and a few other people that do like to be glory hounds. So you know, like no, I'm not in that. I'm not in this to sensationalize this. I'm in this to be um, serious, and I can't take Joe Rogan seriously. Why would I be on a show? But there have been there have been things that I've done, and there are shows that don't exist now because I stepped in and said, "You need to watch yourself when working with this person because he's a known hoaxer and blah 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 blah." And so, um, so I've actually, if anything, kept a few shows from actually happening. Um, just because I'm trying to keep somewhat of a dignity and integrity within the general Bigfoot community. You know, there's too many people trying to be famous, but all they're doing is making fools of themselves and letting these production companies make fools of themselves. So, and just little discretion, guys, come on, you know. And I've seen some pretty good guys who are I, that I respect that have gone on these shows and have completely shot themselves in the foot because of this. So, you know, we we do need to be careful because people, these production companies are in for the money and the ratings, and Bigfoot is big money and big ratings. So, but you have to use a little bit of discretion. I'm not going to go on a show where they're going to possibly humiliate us or question our integrity or show us to be idiots. That's, That's not constructive. Just like a lot of these movies that are coming out, where Bigfoot horror movies, so they, are you serious? This is not justifying the Bigfoot cause at all. This is making money off the horror aspect in the horror community. And what it's doing is also planting these unfavorable, unrealistic thoughts about what these creatures are and the common person who has no experience with these things. So when they do go in the woods and they do have these experiences, they're going to over-sensationalize themselves, maybe even extremely overreact and cause a danger to themselves or to the Bigfoots. 
So we don't need this stuff. This is why I just have nothing to do with any of this, any of those things. I, I won't even waste my time watching most of these Bigfoot movies. But now you have Bigfoot porn coming out. It's like, really, come on, you know? By the way, that guy that was out, you know, was under, going in his underwear, it's a good thing he went back because he would have made the inquiry of, you know, Bigfoot's old lover type of thing. <laughs> you know? I, I'm sorry, that was probably, that was bad. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, I have a weird sense of humor. So, I, yeah, it's, it's uh, the the media, of course, they, they play up anything that, that uh, makes fun of or, or uh, demeans the the science part of they, there, there's no uh, media going out talking about science with Bigfoot. It's anything that's sensational or, you know, if you've got a, a stuffed Bigfoot that you're taking around the country and charging people for, they'll jump all over that. I mean, that's, you bet, you know, but uh, you bet. Yeah, well, there are, there are, there, there are one or two production companies that are interested in it. And that's actually who I work with. And uh, we're still in the, we, um, I guess I can talk about this publicly now, but we're in the process of doing more DNA projects, including um, more DNA project related shows. And we're, and this is something that National Geographic is ordering. So National Geographic is a respectable organization. And so the shows are respectable, which is why Bigfootology is going to be uh, one of the heads of that project again. So, um, but that's, I guess that's this is the first time I publicly talked about that. But that's still, we're still in, still in the planning stages. So we may not see anything until late spring or summer starting on that. So. Bruce, do you have any comments on Brian Sykes' book? Yeah, I made a post just uh, about a week or two ago where Brian's book will be out on April 9th, and they've changed the name of it to uh, The Nature of the Beast, and I'm expecting my first copy at any time, my preliminary copy. So other than that, I really don't know exactly what's in it, so uh, it'll be interesting. And I'm also still working on Lori Simmons' new book, and that should be out here probably in the next month or so. So... I'm doing the editing and production on that myself. So that book will be out soon. And, yeah, but other than that, Brian has some plans. He's going to be in some literary uh, events. So that'll be fun. So he'll be out plugging that book. And right now, Brian is actually down in New Zealand, which is where he usually does his writing, um, working on fiction. So he's going. he's taking a dip into the fiction world. So that'll be interesting to read. Or I should say nonfiction. Yeah, there's no fiction. Yeah, the fiction world. Excuse me. I was coughing. I was, had muted myself because I was coughing. <laughs> um, yeah, quite right, Gunner. <laughs> so uh, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Red, is there anything else that that uh, you'd like to share before we we uh, sign off here? Uh, hmm, like to share. Uh, well, we talked about an awful lot on Friday yeah. night, but that's that'll have to be something for another another day, another show. But <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, make sure I uh, when we sign off, I, I still like to talk to you and Gunner behind the scenes if you don't mind. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. Okay. Okay. Uh, but uh, you know, we got about two minutes left in a minute or so. Uh, what's the future of Bigfootology? You know, you talked about some of the the uh, work work going on with uh, some of these production companies and stuff. Where do you see Bigfootology um, in a couple of years? Uh, well, if I don't retire by then, <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't. Well, we have projects that we're working on behind the scenes. Some of you on the TFRG uh, group know about this project and its sensitivity. Um, so I'm not. I can't talk about that publicly. But uh, and again, we're, we usually don't talk about these things publicly until we have something to report. But uh, right now, our main focus, uh, my main focus, quite frankly, is um, this last year personally has been hell and I'm just trying to get myself reestablished and and stabilized again and that's that's to a degree has hurt Bigfootology because I'm not out there as much and doing what I should be so it is what it is but um, but I have lots of great friends we have a lot we have an excellent team and I do plan on being at Beachfoot again this year with Todd and Diane uh, who are great people and a lot of fun to have around and um then as things stabilize, we'll get these other projects back in gear. So right now, it's um, I've just been doing some public speaking, going to some local schools. I, like I said, I turned down most most invitations for shows and radio and stuff like that just because I'm, I've got nothing really to report that's new. So um, so it's just where are we at? I need to get my my act together, and then we'll be back on on uh, schedule here. So, but other than that, we have we have plans in the future. We'd like to eventually, if we see this to fruition, not only do we identify the species, and but we also will eventually open. And I've talked about this several years ago. Uh, open a facility where we can um, recover them, uh, monitor them in their natural environment, and you know, kind of like a, like what Ian Redmond does for his gorillas and monkeys and that type of thing. So, but for Bigfoots, and have that station here somewhere up in the mountains of Pacific Northwest, so that we can learn about them more in depth. Hello. Yeah. Okay, Rhett. Um, sorry <laughs> about that. We're uh, we've wrapped up. So uh, thank you for joining us uh, uh, and sharing. Um, your experience, your ideas, your opinions, and your background with us uh, here at Monstrux Radio. really appreciate it. Um, and we hope to have you back on the show sometime and, and have you back out in the uh, Tillamook area or meet up with you somewhere else. Uh, I love picking your brain. Uh, you got a lot of great ideas. Um, Not a problem. And we always always look forward to hanging out with you. But uh, we'll, we'll uh, contact you uh, after the show. Okay. Sounds good. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Right. You too. Bye-bye.